We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players, as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Hey, Samo, excited to chat about Singapore. We did a deep dive uh, last week on Japan, and uh, you have a couple of great pieces on Singapore, and I thought we'd uh, we'd get right into it. Singapore is a uh an interesting example of a state that through balancing the geopolitical interests of much larger countries has uh, navigated both trade and diplomacy to its benefit. Most of that is the credit of, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a founder practically Lee Kuan Yew. Now, of course, the city of Singapore had existed long before the uh, independence movement in the 1960s. It existed long before Lee Kuan Yew ever entered office as prime minister, but it was under his tenure from, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s, that Singapore became a truly wealthy society, right? There is a, um, you know, excellent book uh, from a third world to first, where, you know, it honestly, correctly summarizes uh, his experience in office and the measures and the um, strategy that Singapore had used uh, to become uh, so prosperous. It is very rare for a post-colonial state in the 20th century to have actually achieved uh, full prosperity. Now, we've seen some examples of this, right? There is um, uh, South Korea, a very developed and now wealthy country. Those, you know, uh, a colonial possession of Japan prior to World War II. Singapore did have some natural institutional advantages already, where unlike if you are a uh, you know former uh, colony of Japan, if you're a former colony of Britain, you will have a whole developed legal tradition like common law. But more importantly, much as Hong Kong benefited from a well-trained civil service, uh, so did Singapore itself. Like Lee Kuan Yew was uh, educated in Britain. Uh, he, you know, was not in favor of maintaining or sustaining the British Empire, but he tried to the best of his ability to recreate the British civil service and continue the tradition of the British civil service uh, with this very meritocratic and efficiency-oriented approach to bureaucracy, right? The view is that you can have um, highly educated experts do a good job. And, you know, to this day, uh, Singapore has some interesting features. Uh, senior positions in the government are very well paid. The argument is that if these were not well paid, they would not attract top talent. And if they still somehow got top talent, they actually, the officials would have reason uh, to, you know, pursue corruption and so on. So it's kind of interesting to consider uh, the idea that you might want to pay certain government officials very, very well. And then on the other hand, make it very, very difficult to uh, enrich yourself in other ways uh, off of your position. This, of course, reminds me of some of the joke trading strategies that you've, uh, you might have seen on Twitter where people follow the investments of U.S. congressmen and yeah. make a portfolio in line with the investments of U.S. congressmen. I think one is, is like the Nancy Pelosi portfolio. Yeah. And I, I think there's a few other strategies, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there is an argument to be made that, that you know, people like, like congressmen, uh, you know, secretaries of state, treasury, these people do enrich themselves one way or the other. <laughs> so perhaps it's best to do it above board. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you get better people 
you know, uh, upfront initially. Share more about what's underrated or, or misunderstood about Singapore's rise. You know, something underappreciated about how they were able to navigate uh, the geopolitics of of sort of big players around it. Or let's give some more context on the on the rise. Well, you know the um, environment, the environment, and the um, the era of Singapore's ascent is the era of the Cold War. There is no question that. Southeast Asia was actually up for grabs in the second half of the 20th century, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was a playground for uh, foreign powers. At first, Soviet influence versus U.S. influence, and then later on, more and more also Chinese influence as China uh, split from the Soviet Union, um, you know, ideologically and politically. Um, Singapore had an active communist movement, actually, that was a serious contender for power in the immediate aftermath of independence and during its uh, brief merger with the neighboring states and, you know, reacquired, reacquired uh, independence. To today, basically, Singapore's location in Southeast Asia in the Straits there puts it at a key place. Singapore's position in Southeast Asia means that it is on the Straits of Malacca. These straits basically constrict international trade uh, to China to this day. Uh, it has always been an excellent naval maritime uh, trade position. Uh, you basically have this commanding view of this bottleneck on trade. Uh, it was always historically possible to you know, use ships to interdict shipping through it. Uh, you know, this area of Indonesia has seen the rise and fall over the centuries of many maritime empires. It has been a key stop in world trade since the spice trade. This is what drew colonial and European powers there in the first place. But it also meant that it was considered vital in any sort of hypothetical war uh, between the United States and China or the United States and back in the day, the Soviet Union. Uh, today, Singapore remains a key U.S. ally, but it is economically very dependent on China. Much as all the other countries in the region, a significant chunk of its trade is with mainland China as that economy has ascended. The positioning, right, this geographic position is why Singapore at the end of the day is as a state, not uh, included or not, uh, you know, part of any of the neighboring countries such as Indo Indonesia or Malaysia. It was useful to break up and break off a small administrative region, develop it separately, and uh, give it this, this kind of original autonomy. And this autonomy then persisted after independence, right? Once you have an administrative breakup, as these big European colonial empires fell apart, Often these uh, boundaries that were at first arbitrarily drawn came to be in reality, uh, you know, actualized, came to be real international boundaries. And then you have this effect where it becomes more and more real over time. Now, to this day, Singapore remains a multi-ethnic country with people of Malay ancestry, South Asian ancestry, uh, but also overseas Chinese ancestry. And the country actually faced a deep domestic challenge uh, because of these diverse demographics. In the 1960s, you know, Singapore had basically race riots of various kinds where there was the claim that, you know, some groups are privileged over others, uh, that, you know, some uh, groups are wealthier than others, which was and continues to be uh, true statistically. And this was part of the reason why a, a communist revolution seemed very plausible in the 1960s. And, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, when pursuing independence, briefly entered into a coalition to govern uh, or at least pursue independence in some amount of political cooperation with uh, the Singaporean Communist Party. And I, I can't think of many other examples in, in history where there is a revolutionary pursuit, a revolutionary goal, and you have a faction align with the Communist Party, and it's the Communist Party that pulls the short end of the stick afterwards. You know, the, the only other example I know of is uh, sort of the Iranian Revolution, which was at first assisted by, uh, you know, uh, both, you know, moderate democratic 
liberal reformists, but also the Communist Party of Iran, and also, of course, the uh, Islamist Islamist uh, faction. And ultimately, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamist faction went out in Iran, and in Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew wins out. Uh, the country becomes this parliamentary, um, you know, basically a parliamentary democracy of some kind. Uh, but in practice, it is his political party that he created called the People's Action Party, uh, the PAP, that retains overwhelming political dominance. This domestic and foreign situation, this balancing act, is something that is very keenly felt in any country that is of any geopolitical significance. There's massive incentive to try to topple, overthrow a government. So it was an immense achievement uh, that the government basically was efficient, oriented towards the prosperity of Singapore, and not overthrown by a foreign government. Uh, the U.S., of course, was in the business of supporting any government that was at least somewhat anti-communist, but they didn't always select for efficiency, right? The South Vietnamese government was a very corrupt government and a very ineffectual uh, government, which is, you know, part of the reason why South Vietnam does not exist today. What are like the big inflection points that when we look back at sort of the, 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 you know, last 70 years or so in time that we're talking about have, have led to, you know, most contributed to Singaporean pr pr prosperity? Was, was it sort of a, a steady rise or were there some true forks in the road or true moments where, uh, you know, there were inflection points? Well, you know, a small impoverished city state is not set automatically on a course towards successful industrialization. The key inflection points were uh, the struggles with the unions, including the struggle with the Singaporean airlines, uh, which were developed at a certain point as a crucial part of Singapore's national strategy. Uh, there was a political struggle between the government and the unions in the 60s, uh, 70s, and later, where if the unions had remained powerful, perhaps the working conditions would be improved. But uh, basically, they wouldn't just, they just would not be the capital to develop the quality of these services to a high level, right? It is a sort of situation where you could think of Singapore as having pursued delayed gratification over and over again, where it prioritized economic growth over social or economic measures aimed at, uh, you know, alleviating growing inequality. Now, there were measures such as the strong focus on building housing, which is actually an interesting example, right? In Singapore, a lot of the housing is state-owned housing, and it is actually, uh, you know, fairly high quality. And the view is that this is, uh, you know, a necessary intervention uh, to make Singapore more livable in, uh, at its population density and to make sure that many of the workers that Singapore needs uh, to uh, keep running can afford to live in the city. So there were elements of social policy there, but to a very, very great degree, it was the government sort of thinking of the country almost as a business or as, as, as a video game where you look at industry after industry and you just try to prioritize its growth. And if need be, you invest directly or you invest indirectly, or you build up something and you privatize it, or you subsidize it. It's almost an interesting mix of a, uh, you know, a libertarian and a statist uh, kind of approach. And it's not complete laissez-faire, but it is quite laissez-faire in, in many, many ways. It's just that there's almost like an economic plan in place of, okay, we're going to prioritize ports, we're going to prioritize airports, we're going to prioritize uh, the energy infrastructure. There's no economic reason yet to build some of these things, but we plan on future growth. The future growth materialized. Therefore, these were good investments rather than malinvestments. And perhaps this is a case where the very small size of the city, uh, the small size of the state, the city itself, of course, is several million people, might contribute to alleviate the difficulties of planning. Perhaps at the end of the day, it is easier to plan out the economic development of a single city than it is of 10 diverse and different cities, right? Let alone large regions 
you know, agricultural regions, mining regions, etc. Uh, the United States is an immensely complicated country, but even New York City is immensely complicated. But were New York City an independent government, perhaps at the end of the day, the independent uh, government of New York City would be better incentivized to have cost-efficient infrastructure than the New York City that is part of the United States, right? Because think about it, the uh, tax revenue straightforwardly feeds back into the city government, which is also the national government. And in the United States, only a you know small amount of taxes actually go into the coffers of city governments compared to state and national. So there's a way in which uh, the urgency of growing New York economically is less apparent if the government that governs New York is, uh, you know, in DC. That's a, that's an argument for federalism, but also for perhaps much smaller States around the world. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. In the U S I would say that, uh, the federal system exists on paper, but in practice, the federal government is much stronger than any given individual state. Uh, you know, perhaps the U S should have fewer and more powerful States uh, you could argue that when the 13 colonies were created, and it was a true federated republic as well, when they first came into being, every single state was as important as Texas or California are today. Yeah. And is it, it just that over time, uh, you know, centralized bureaucracies are going to centralize bureaucracy, become centralized bureaucracies and become, just become bigger and bigger, and they just don't have incentive to the disperse power to, to the edges or to, to the states? It's very difficult to maintain a genuinely federated system, right? So perhaps there's an argument for um, the actual fragmentation of sovereignty in some way around the world. Uh, and, you know, Singapore and until recently Hong Kong were frequently used as examples of perhaps city-states are more oriented towards prosperity inherently uh, than other kinds of states, because there's something very useful about this extreme pressure for efficiency, right? Singapore, again, I've emphasized how small it is. Uh, did you know that they've reclaimed a significant amount of land from the sea? The Dutch are known for this, uh, but this is something that Singapore has undertaken as well. There need to be uh, a new big airport. So where do you build a new big airport if real estate prices have been going up and up for decades? Well, you build an artificial island, right? And that's where you put the airport or you expand uh, a district uh, and so on. Um, but they're almost reaching the point where they're running out of territorial waters. So there's a limit sort of even to that, right? There's hard limits to growth and you are trying to maximize the value of your real estate in a very significant way, you could just open up and become sort of a, a vacation spot where foreign interests buy up a lot of your land, driving up the price. However, there has to be something fundamentally appealing about uh, where you are. Since the 1990s, the small scale of Singapore does actually stop it from being a global industrial powerhouse. Like in the early stages, 60s to 90s, uh, you could actually just pursue straightforward industrialization in a way that's not too dissimilar from what South Korea did or what Taiwan did. After the 1990s, however, the strategy became we should become a tax haven and a uh, legal jurisdiction for business in East Asia and Southeast Asia. We should attract as many foreign corporate uh, headquarters to move here as possible. And we should encourage as many people to become Singaporean citizens as possible who will bring in their own wealth. And, you know, the government of Singapore is also interesting because they were very early on uh, aware of the demographic problems introduced by low fertility. Like there's a big speech by, you know, where Lee Kuan Yew is basically encouraging people to like, you know, get married and have babies. And, you know, they should do that before they finish their PhDs because the PhD can wait, but like, you know, starting a family can't. And there were attempts to encourage uh, fertility. But I think the fact that the very competent government of Singapore couldn't find a way to do this bodes poorly for the rest of the world.
Now, them having understood that they can't do this, they've not successfully raised fertility, comports decently well with this strategy of, okay, we will become a tax haven, and this is perhaps a solution uh, in, in a corporate headquarters, in a logistical center. Uh, this is perhaps a solution for an aging society if you're a single city. It's not a solution for a large country like Japan, China, or the United States. But it is. it has allowed them to continue growing in affluence. One of the most important things to consider is that, you know, with a GDP of $400 billion, it's a larger economy than, say, Vietnam, Iran, uh, Pakistan. And these are, these are already powerful political forces. They just uh, have potential in them, at least hypothetically, uh, to dominate entire global industries. And that's, that's something Singapore can't do. Uh, furthermore, Singapore in a per capita basis is one of only a handful of states that has a higher GDP per capita than the United States. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. It's a very different model also in a social sense, where in the US we often take it for granted that there's a, a strong emphasis on individual freedom is the way and reason why the U.S. is wealthy. And in Singapore, there certainly is a strong emphasis on economic freedom, but less so on other kinds of personal freedom. Again, much as the demands of a city and the immense pressures of it on city government produce perhaps a drive for economic growth, I also think it produces a, uh, a fairly draconian approach to law enforcement, right? If a city government is a state government, at the end of the day, it will be very interested in eliminating crime completely. So if you traffic uh, drugs in Singapore, you risk the death penalty, right? And even for many minor offenses, uh, they actually have kept corporeal punishment, like you might get caned for certain crimes. Now, of course, at the end of the day, if we were being provocative, um, what is better? Putting you in a small box at the taxpayer's expense for five years, or do you just pick you know, the public humiliation and physical pain of caning? And you know, even I personally might just decide if, I, if a judge gave me hypothetically a choice of, should, you, should I be locked up in prison for four years or should I get caned? I think I'd probably pick the caning I would not be very happy. I would certainly remember it, maybe it'd be a little traumatic, but you know what? Being locked up in prison for four years is traumatic. And if you let me out on the street, don't put me in prison or don't cane me, then you know I'll be traumatic for everyone else on the streets. Can you imagine if, if Singapore allowed itself to waste a third or half of its real estate the way that San Francisco does? And I say this as a proud resident of San Francisco, uh, you know, I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we should execute uh, drug dealers. Perhaps we should cane people that harass others in the streets. I don't know. Maybe that would solve some problems. To be very spicy here, right? Because this is this is the interesting point. Negative and positive externalities become intensely concentrated in a small city environment. In a way. Yes, extreme focus on individual freedom and maybe even an over-focus on non-incarceration 
This works well if you have a large country with a lot of space. But if you have high population densities, you can preserve a lot of economic freedom. But I think public order uh, becomes ever, ever more important because any disruption to public order immediately results in lower economic performance. And that's why I'm talking about, you know, the hypothetical of wasting space. The economics of wasting space uh, trump over uh, the possibility of having a more lax approach to, to law enforcement and crime. And again, there are things that are undesirable or not sustainable at a national level that work for Singapore. A lot of its workers have only temporary work permits and actually commute into the city uh, from neighboring Malaysia. Of course, Singapore would be more than happy to buy land off of Malaysia if uh, Malaysia offered. Uh, but Malaysia is uninterested, right? I think part of the hope of Malaysia is that the areas immediately adjacent to Singapore just develop economically over time. And perhaps there's some very long-term desire to have their own economic uh, city, especially economic zone and city that could outshine Singapore just because of its scale. One thing that people miss about the historical realities of the purchase and sale of land, which to us today, it seems very interesting that say the United States could do something like the Louisiana purchase or purchasing Alaska. But what people miss today is that in the 19th century, conquest and purchase and sale of land went together. Basically, France sold the large Louisiana territory because they were afraid that either Britain or the United States would seize it anyway otherwise. And the Russians were concerned about the long-term viability of maintaining Alaska and whether it would just be given to the British with who they were in uh, you know, a significant uh, geopolitical uh, competition at the time. So there is no military sword hanging over Malaysia. So Malaysia, while perhaps it might be economically a good deal, uh, sort of chooses this uh, focus on preserving territorial uh, integrity over anything that Singapore could offer, right? Uh, the sale and purchase of land historically happened because there was a threat of violence. It was just a more civilized way to do things than to have a colonial war over it. Say more about what are the things that Singapore does at a level of you know five point four million people that could work if they were uh, you know a country of a hundred million people or you know scaled up or would break down. And I guess I ask that to say that when other countries around the world look at Singapore who, who are much bigger, what are the things that they should say? Hey, that could work here if we're you know twenty x or, or or so bigger. Or now that that would that could only work in a population of five ten million people. There are definitely some political economy problems that might come into play if you copy uh, wholesale or individually some of these strategies. But I can list a few clear examples because we have uh, examples elsewhere in the world of countries doing something very similar. You know, the key part of Singapore's um, economic strategy is to be a financial hub. And, you know, since 1997, Singapore's corporate tax rate has been repeatedly lowered from 26% to 17%, you know, as of, as of May, 2023. This is still higher than many tax havens around the world, um, like Switzerland or Cyprus, but it's lower than any other major country in Asia, Europe, or North America. You could have a very low corporate tax in a larger country uh, that is lower than what you see elsewhere in the region. So, for example, for Britain or for Ireland, they probably need to compete with Switzerland to some extent if they wanted to pursue that strategy. But really, all you need to do is be better than the EU and have some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of economic ties or special treaties with them. And likewise, for Latin America, you know, if say Argentina or, uh, you know, El Salvador were to pursue something like this. They would just have to be the best choice in the region. They don't have to be the best choice in the world. So there can definitely be multiple corporate headquarters in different parts of the world, multiple financial centers. And you can have a large country such as the United Kingdom have a major financial hub such as London. Now, I was alluding to the problems of political economy, though, where what is best for London 
is perhaps not best for the rest of England or the rest of the United Kingdom. And then you might have, uh, unless you're very clever in your federal system setup, uh, you might have conflicts of interest between the different parts of the country. So, okay, the first one, the financial strategy can be copied. The second strategy that I think can be copied is uh, very strong city governments where perhaps there is a unification of the interests as much as possible, even below the level of sovereignty uh, of power to cities. Perhaps in the United States, if you made uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, greater Los Angeles, New York, uh, and, you know, um, I don't know, maybe Seattle, uh, if you made these states, if you made these city governments also states, I think you would see something very interesting. I think you would see better, uh, better legislative outcomes and better economic outcomes. So yes, like a powerful city government, I think is all else equal a good thing because city governments are, you know, at least in theory, if they have this responsibility for themselves, uh, they can be incentivized to pursue economic growth. But it's sort of like, you know, if a city government can spend unlimited amounts of federal money or state money, then of course it's not going to have those properties. Right. So it's very much this kind of devolution uh, aspect. I think another feature of Singapore is its strong investment in automation. I think all around the world, uh, governments should actively be spending money on automation. What do I mean by this? It is an economic distortion, but I think we should actually be trying as hard as we can to make as many jobs obsolete as we possibly can. Now, this doesn't sound like an election winning slogan. It's sort of like, you know, this year I will eliminate 10% of the jobs needed in the economy. Like that just doesn't work as an electoral slogan. However, uh, people should be really preparing countries for severe demographic transitions and shocks. You should be preparing for this much more than you should be preparing for global warming. And I'm again, I'm in favor of some uh, sponsored R&D into, uh, you know, green energy. But even more so, I'm in favor of various kinds of tax breaks to encourage companies to find ways to do the same amount of work or more work uh, with less labor because the price of labor will increase massively over time. And I'm in favor also of various kinds of R&D. Uh, let's remember that now we live in the era, the dawn of self-driving cars. Self-driving cars reached a lot of their key breakthroughs through DARPA's projects, right? The self-driving research initially was not very commercializable. In fact, to this day, say uh, legged robots, like the ones we see in Boston Dynamics, they're arguably still not commercializable. DARPA was kind of one of the main customers of Boston Dynamics. And now that they've pivoted towards, you know, other kinds of uh, automation, they have a much more conventional warehouse robot and even a wheeled robot. And those are the kind of robots that find a place in the modern economic context. Uh, they're not the sort of breakthrough stuff that maybe 20, 30, 40 years down the line results in lower demand for labor. So, okay. Uh, have you ever heard about, uh, you know, the eating, eating, uh, I won't live in a pod. I won't eat the bugs. Yes. Yes. A famous uh, meme on the right. Okay. Yeah. And, and people kind of blame Klaus, uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum for this. But it's really not his fault. So as much as we all like Singapore, I actually think Singapore is responsible for the perpetual uh, investment and promotion of insect food. Let me explain. <laughs> as of 2019, the government launched the new Singapore Food Agency. So the goal is to improve food um, security in case of a war. We talked a little bit about the potential relevance of Singapore in a hypothetical US versus China war, correct? And under those circumstances, Singapore might find itself blockaded and might find itself starving. And we've also talked about how extreme the demand for land is in Singapore, right? So where exactly are you going to do farming? How could you possibly feed the population? And they have this rather insane and honestly, very ambitious science fiction like goal 
of increasing um, self-sufficiency in food to like 30% of consumption by 2030. This plan will depend on novel technologies like indoor vertical farming or creating uh, new types of food from insects and algae. And one of the more interesting things is between 2008 and 2012, uh, Temasek invested in multiple rounds of funding for the French company InnovaFeed, which manufactures animal feed from insects. And they've also invested uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into these other companies. Temasek was also an early investor in the US company Impossible Foods and so on. So when I, when I looked recently at the companies that tend to run these ad campaigns that want to sort of normalize the use of insect protein in processed food, uh, I realized, wait, like over half of these are working off of investments from the Singaporean government. So, okay, why do we see articles promoting insect food? Because companies understand they have a marketing problem when they want to take off and, you know, produce their, sell, sell their insect food. Why are there so many uh, companies that are uh, trying to find ways uh, to make use of insects in human nutrition? Well, it's because Singapore needs food self-sufficiency. So that's, that's rather funny, right? Like you could have a single government of a small city state, it has an investment strategy. And as a side, a side effect of that investment strategy, you keep seeing these like sort of weird articles pop up, these weird think pieces about how it's good for the environment, how it's good for climate, how it's maybe more ethical. Uh, and, and really, it's all about making sure that the Singaporeans don't starve uh, to death in case China blockades them. Well, it, it, it's funny. I mean, you also wrote in your piece how you know Singapore acknowledges that it's been a very strong beneficiary of globalization. And in a world where deglobalization starts to happen or U.S. starts to pull back, that presents a grave threat to, to Singapore, or that could pose a great threat. Talk, talk more about how that threat could manifest and how else Singapore could or should uh, respond in result. Well, one of the key things is uh, globalization is good for Singapore because it provided a relatively secure and peaceful international environment, as well as the opportunities of global markets. Again, if you're a single city, first an industrial city, and then a financial city, um, you need to find your markets elsewhere. You don't have uh, a billion consumers domestically like say, uh, China does. Uh, you have to find a billion consumers everywhere around the world. Uh, and now, of course, also China benefited from the same thing uh, because international consumers were much wealthier. Singapore has to acquire a greater degree of energy and food self-sufficiency merely to be able to last longer, to withstand a hypothetical siege longer on the hope that a foreign power comes to its aid and alleviates uh, its situation. They have invested a lot into uh, various defense, uh, defense forces, and they actually have something of a domestic defense industry where they also export weapons. And these are all great, but at the end of the day, being a very small country does mean that, uh, you know, if a superpower like the United States or China wanted to invade you, there's not much you can do. You can only make it very expensive to invade you. And you can make it so that you last out long enough for uh, a different great power to decide that, no, actually, they're not interested in the U.S. or in China taking over the country. Now, I don't think the U.S. has any active uh, threat towards Singapore at all. I'm just discussing that as sort of like a matter of, of principle, basically, right? So the adaptation, I think, will have to be for a world where trade blocks are going to be the basic unit of international trade. I think we're already seeing it where even the relationships, economic relationships between the United States and Western Europe have worsened now compared to 20 or 30 years ago. There's nothing as serious as the trade war between the US and China, but there are elements of back and forth jostling and even um, there's some acrimony in trade relations between the EU and the United States. And this also shows up in tech where the EU continuously finds 
American companies in various ways for basically doing business within within the EU, right? Basically running normal normal software. And and normally I think people interpret this as okay, the EU is just so broken, but I also think that there is a stealth digital trade war uh that's sort of happening between Europe and the United States. And I think basically the US will win because Europe is too slow to provide its own alternate digital services, but let's wait to see 10 years. I think this might become more apparent over time because I think the key generator of this is, you know, the EU commission doesn't find the few European companies at anywhere close to rate that American companies are fined. So that's why I think it's, it's a little bit selective. I've also not heard of them finding uh, the few Chinese companies uh, that have made a big impact online. So I think there's there's some sort of competitive ang- angle there. But to bring it back to Singapore, Singapore will have to pick which great trade block are you a part of. And that's where we hit the snag that's hard to resolve. The largest nearby regional economy is China. The only way to retain political autonomy and independence from China, not just for Singapore, but even for countries like South Korea, Vietnam, etc., is to be close allies of the U.S., the U.S. might want to couple much more tightly being an economic partner and being a political ally. In the era of globalization, the U.S. would do business with everyone, including China. The U.S. has now realized that perhaps it's not a great idea to allow uh, an economy to outcompete you, especially if it has unfair trade practices. So I think the solution probably that they will pursue is economic integration with China, but there does exist an alternative. The alternative is if we expect even moderate economic growth from India. So nothing like the economic growth of China, but even with moderate economic growth from India, in a way there is one ocean of the world where globalization hasn't yet happened. Let me explain. The Atlantic arguably reached peak globalization in the, in the early 20th century. The total value of trade going between Europe and America has been probably fairly stagnant for a long time. And any sort of cultural or political exchange that happened between, say, Europe and the Americas already was done uh, by at least the 1940s, let's say. Like that was the last big rearrangement of the transatlantic relationship politically. Economically, the late 20th century and early 20th century has been a Pacific century where trade between the United States and China and the other Pacific partners such as Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and so on. That was a big deal. The one ocean of the world where the coasts of the ocean will remain young and have a rising population, and it is not yet caught up economically at all to the Western world, is the Indian Ocean. You have the east coast of Africa with an exploding population and some decently stable countries uh, like, uh, you know, Kenya, you have the Middle East, which to be fair is already fairly globalized, but it has financial centers and economic centers such as, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates and to a lesser extent, Ku- Kuwait and Qatar. You have India, which now will have a lower dependency rate and is a China sized potential unified economy. And you have Southeast Asia. So in theory, at least, If Singapore were to greatly enhance its economic investments and trade ties to countries of, you know, this Indian Ocean region that are trading more and more with China, Japan, and South Korea, and also to some extent the United States, I think that could be a source of growth. That could bring freight ships through Singapore, and that might be an alternative to just being in the Chinese economic bloc. But then again, the question is, how do the politics work out? And, you know, we think of Singapore as a Southeast Asian country, but really it's very culturally East Asian. So how do you expect this to play out? You, you, you've talked about sort of the, the choices or the, or the fork in the, in the road or sort of the, the calculus, uh, ha, ha, given how the uh, other chess pieces on the board might might sort of uh, evolve over the next decade or, or, or two. H- how do you expect uh, Singapore to, to play this year? Well, 
I think that Singapore will continue to be quite effective at pursuing its financial strategy. It has uh, a little bit of a windfall because people have realized that Hong Kong is just another Chinese jurisdiction, right? This has been the evolution of the last few years. Ten years ago, you could argue that you get all of the benefits of being in China and all of the benefits of being outside of China if you're in Hong Kong. Now you can no longer argue that. Right now, Singapore is the best regional option. I think that they will achieve... They won't achieve full success with automation, despite their heavy investments there. Uh, they will basically continue to have a very high um, quality of urban life. Uh, again, their public infrastructure is absolutely gorgeous. If you, for example, see things like, uh, you know, the urban design, right? The the city is very memorable, and honestly, the Singapore Singapore's airport looks practically fantastical. And in a way, an airport is important. It's your embassy to the world. People really judge your city by what kind of airport uh, they land in, right? Um, and, you know, Singapore gets top marks for that. So people want to continue traveling through Singapore. What I would most worry if I were Singapore is energy costs and the onset of a war between China and the United States. I would try to the best of ability to try to moderate or ameliorate US-China relations. Singapore doesn't have, you know, an overwhelming say, but it can be diplomatically active in small ways. Any sort of major conflict between China and the US is economically devastating and might actually impoverish the country because it is a child of globalization. It might become an orphan of globalization. Uh, so I think they are well aware of these problems. They're trying to build strategic resilience through food, automation, um, energy. They understand the limits of their impact internationally. But again, sometimes small nations can be very effective at diplomacy. They can be a middle ground in a way. Um, I think the key question is going to be, on uh, the question of succession, right? The current prime minister is the son of Lee Kuan Yew. The next prime minister might be the grandson of Lee Kuan Yew. So let's see what the successors have in mind. I think the current prime minister is carrying out a fairly sensible program to its completion. And before this program of financialization and adaptation to an older society. Before that's completed, I don't think they're going to be pursuing bold new strategies. So I think that Singapore is, of all the states in the world, best incentivized to pursue great breakthrough technologies. So if I were running an ambitious company that is aiming to solve a hard tech problem, I wouldn't be talking to any American investors. I would try to talk to the Singaporean government and I would show up and say, look, if our company works, this key problem of being a high population density state in a potential global war zone is solved. Fund me. <laughs> and I would, and you know, with, for a few million dollars, you can get a Singaporean citizenship. So honestly, maybe if you're doing a chip fab startup, uh, you should be asking the Singaporean government uh, to invest heavily in your bold new replacement for chip fabs rather than trying to do it in the Bay Area. Yeah, no, uh, clever idea. Uh, gearing towards closing here, you've thought a lot about the succession problem and, and written quite a bit about it. Um, should more countries or companies embrace this sort of, here uh, you know, uh, hereditary uh uh, lineage in terms of picking the the next leader should should uh, you know Zuck pass on Facebook to his kid uh, someday like the New York Times uh, has has done or um, other countries in the same way that, that Singapore has done. I think that uh, Singapore, you know, again, it's a it's a parliamentary democracy, but there is one party that is so entrenched uh, because they have a first uh, first past the post system, and you can gerrymander the various districts as much as you want to uh, make sure that basically your representative wins. So the People's Action Party remains in charge, and then within the People's Action Party, the uh, prestige, reputation, and political acumen of Lee Kuan Yew was so great uh, that you know, he could kind of handpick his successor. And I honestly think that if Lee Kuan Yew thought that his son wasn't fit for the job, he wouldn't have endorsed him politically. 
but he did. So what I would say is I think more companies and organizations should endorse the idea that whoever is currently running the company should pick who the successor is. Just handpick the best person you can. And we should be open to the idea that sometimes uh, people for very personal reasons want to hand it off to their children. You want to have a legacy. For some families, uh, especially if they have a lot of children, if they have many children, meritocracy and nepotism are not necessarily at odds. Anyone who has more than one child knows how different your children are. I think today, when we tend to have small families, we forget that nepotism used to sometimes mean that among your 10, 10 kids or five kids, all of who you've tried the best you can to raise in, you know, basically your family's value or your family's vision of the world, you know, one of them is pretty good, actually. It would be quite hard to find someone that's better. I think we tend to forget that because with fewer children, it's, it's much more luck-based. But if you can pick among your children, I think that's a solid way uh, to maintain a family legacy. It's a solid way to run a company like the New York Times. It's a solid way to run uh, other family companies like, uh, you know, the Wallenberg's uh, business empire in, uh, in Sweden or uh, the Lee, the other Lee dynasty, right? The one of Samsung of, of South Korea. We're at time. This has been a great uh, deep dive into to Singapore. Sam, always, uh, always a pleasure. And until, until next week. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 